This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Right, I've got my old character right here. Doc Marvelous is ready to face the forces of evil. Ooh, that's awesome, awesome. Jerry, have you ever played Perils and Pulpitude? Of course. Played very deep, strong chin all through the 70s and 80s. All right. Well, cool. Uh, I haven't played in a while, but let's get started. All right, so Doc, you're piloting your Zeppelin lab over the Pacific when you hear a strange sound on the back of the gondola. All right. Hey, maybe Beef can go back and check on that. Sure. Cool. Okay. So um, you open the door to the cargo bay, and inside you see that the rear door is wide open and five people are standing there. They all have brown leather jackets with rocket packs and spiky metal helmets. Uh, the nearest sees the nearest one to the door sees Beef and raises a strange rifle uh, that like ends with these like copper coils circling the barrel. Oh, Beef's going to duck behind the doorway and draw both his pistol. Hey, Doc, we got air pirates. Again? <laughs> it's totally air pirates. That air pirate turns around, pulls the trigger, and shoots. Okay. I got to remind myself how this goes. Okay, so he's in medium range. Uh, he's using the electro carbine. So I'm going to roll on the light rifle chart. He is a third level ruffian. So that's going to be the third column. Beef is a level five brick. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, beef's a level five brick. So that puts uh, you three columns down on the dodge axis. And he's got cover from the doorway. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yep. I'm, this is all coming back to me. That's medium <coughs> cover. So that shifts the ruffian two columns over. And I roll my percentile dice 79 on that column. That is a light wound. Uh, 1d6 damage. Hang on. You take four points of electrical damage. Well, crap. Oh. Okay, that's not too bad. Uh, I got you covered, Beef. It's time for the reverse Earhart maneuver. Phil, Doc yanks the yoke to the left, causing the Zeppelin to lurch to port, angling downwards. Oof, okay, hang on. Let me switch. Let me change chapters here. Okay, that's all right. That is a class five maneuver. Uh, how fast are you going? Okay, that's a plus one difficulty modifier for every 10 knots. Uh, let me look at the airborne maneuver table. This is going to be great. All right. And with that, welcome to the 442nd episode of the Mr. Mark podcast. Tonight, we examine older games, why we still play them, what we like about them, and what we can use for modern games. So along the way, we're going to take your questions, your examples, and suggestions live through a chat room for life before jumping into the after show. But first, my name is Jared. My name is Phil. And I am Old Man Logan. Welcome to the show, kids. Welcome back. We had a nice little break, but it's time to get into this. So, first things first, let's do our temperature check, see how everybody's feeling. Phil? Uh, I am uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, physically, feeling good. And uh, mentally, you know what? I'm, I'm a solid okay at this point. There you go. Um, I might unpack some of it in the after show, but for now, let's just call me a solid okay, because I know we got a lot of, I know we got a lot of material to cover tonight. All right. Jerry? All right. Um, I'm feeling good. I, uh, last week I had to go out of town and that was a little stressful and rough, but I'm back and, um, up to good work at week, a week at work and a uh, new employee. So it's always a good week. So that's about it for me. Bob. Awesome. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, I got a little thing going on, uh, a little mild infection that I'm on some pills for that are kind of just messing me up just a little bit. 
prednisone always does some fun things. Um, but otherwise, mentally, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, getting psyched about moving soon. So, like, you know, hopefully everything, all the dates go as planned. And there we go. All right. Let's then roll on into our lobby for the one thing. My one thing for this week, I have been watching as my short-form lunch program um, uh, an anime on Netflix called Godzilla Singular Point. And this is a lot of fun. I There is some serious um, um, theoretical science in this show. They're spouting off a whole bunch of stuff and like probably a third of it to a half of it. I didn't even understand, but I went with it because it was a lot of fun. It's, it's an anime and it's a kind of an alternate take on the first appearance of Godzilla and the Kaiju. And it's all tied into like, there's temporal mechanics and there's uh, like, like causality and, and the singular points and like all this other crap. It's just a lot of fun. It's got Jet Jaguar in it, which was fun. Um, some interesting characters, um, and the 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 uh, animation is really good, and the opening theme song, which I skipped, like except for all all but the last show, I finally went. Well, you know what? Let me listen to the, let me to watch the opening credits because I normally hit the skip intro. <laughs> this time I watched it. And I'm like, oh, the opening theme song is really good. It's kind of a hard techno-y kind of a thing. And then the closing credits has this song that's kind of a poppy, kind of a, a lighter thing. And it's super catchy. Neither one of them is in English. It's all Japanese. Um, so I have okay. no idea what the hell they're saying. And there's no subtitles for the songs. But loads of fun. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. It's 13 episodes. And then after the credits of, thir- of episode 13, they give you a little stinger that leads me to believe that there will be more. <laughs> um, and if they're smart, they'll do some more because I think it'll do well. But Godzilla Singular Point, if you're into kaiju and anime, um, it's worth a watch. It's a good trip. You didn't say that was Jet Jaguar there, man. You buried the lead on that puppy. Did I bury the lead by not saying Jet Jaguar right out of the gate? You did not. You didn't tell me anything about that when you were talking about the other day. Well, last thing I'll say is this is not your grandfather's Jet Jaguar. So this is like a modern, new type of Jet Jaguar. But anyhow, what about you, Jerry? Uh, For me, Master of the Universe Revelation. Uh, The first five episodes are out now. On Netflix, um, it is a. I feel like it's a sequel to the original cartoon, but does it takes it in a more. Um, I don't want to say serious or mature, but just a better. If they would have made the old '80s cartoon today and made it less goofy, but they do a really good job with it. Um, the characters are, are well fleshed out. Um, it's. Uh, I will warn people that it's an amazing show, but He-Man is not in it for very much, so it's about mostly the characters. And they're great. And what they do with Eva Lynn is amazing. She's a great character. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a lot of fun. Watch it. Um, it's not like She-Ra. Not that She-Ra wasn't amazing also, but it's a different kind of show. But it's a lot of fun and, and takes it in a good direction. If you like kind of science magic stuff, watch Best Universe Revelation. Bill? Uh, I went on vacation. Uh, my first Yay. vacation in, uh, what, since uh, February 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, hopped a plane, went out to uh, Denver. And went and hung out with uh, with Senda, uh, and on later in the trip with uh, Andy as well, and uh, got to eat many a good eats in and around the Denver area, which was uh, very cool. Had some amazing sushi, um, which is not exactly what you you know think Denver will be known for, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, some birria tacos, fantastic. Uh, 
um, hit up a place called Raising Cane's, which I've only um, ever seen in Texas, which is a chicken finger joint that makes like their own chicken fingers fresh. Like the menu's got like four items. It's like just different sizes of chicken fingers. I've heard of them. They're supposed to be amazing. It's quite good. And the sauce, the cane sauce is the, uh, is really the kicker there. So, uh, did all that, um, went up to, um, Wyoming for a day. That was uh, really interesting. Um, that's probably the highest elevation I've ever been where I, um, walked around and stuff. Uh, it was pretty good. We took like a very short walk on a very level surface. And when we got back to the cars, maybe like a quarter mile, my Apple watch was like, Hey, you did all your exercise for today. And I was like, yes, because I can barely breathe. Like the air is so thin. Um, but anyway, it was really nice. Um, Wyoming's beautiful. Uh, very different having grown up in the Northeast. Um, how far is it from Denver? Uh, like about two hours. So it'd be like, it'd be like, you know, it's like a little more than two hours. So it's like, uh, like getting to Utica from here. No, no, not bad at all. It's, uh, it's interesting because, uh, Laramie, which uh, is where we went, um, is very much both a cowboy town and a college town. So there's like a saloon with like bullet holes from like the 1800s in one wall. And then there's a sushi place like across the street. Right. Cause it's just, it's the dichotomy of both being a cowboy town and a college town. So anyway, it was good. But it was a it was a really nice vacation. It was nice to be off from work, and it was nice to be unplugged. I didn't even take a computer with me, um, which was fantastic. So anyway, that's uh, that's my one thing. Um, it's great. Uh, On to our announcements, uh, really quick. Um, this week we begin our um, week twenty one of our Voyager watch party. Uh, these are the last episodes before the finale next week. Uh, we our next week's watch party will be the finale of Voyager. So. If you're a Voyager fan and want to just come back and watch the finale, um, which I think is ironically named Endgame, um, come uh, come join us next week uh, and come join us next week live, um, which would be, uh, what is it, the second, the third? Third. August 3rd. August 3rd, we'll be closing out our Voyager watch party. Um, we, at this time, don't have any plans to do an Enterprise watch party. We might do one later in the future. Um, but it haven't committed to anything yet. I, I have mixed feelings on, on enterprise. Um, there are definitely some good episodes to see, but then, um, there's season three. <laughs> so, so it's a rough one. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, I might do a very tight curation and just like pick some, pick some really like, you know, iconic episodes kind of thing, but we'll see for now. We're going to just kind of take a little Star Trek break. Yeah. Uh, having completed uh, TNG, DS9, and Voyager um, over the course of the pandemic, we can kind of take a breather. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's next week will be uh, our finale of Voyager. I'm excited because if you've never seen the finale, the finale, Chef's Kiss, so good. I will also say that I have toyed with the idea of curating a, an original series watch party. Ooh. So that has the potential for something down the road a little ways as well. Sure. I would definitely be interested in that. My original series knowledge is pretty hit and miss. Yeah, I, I grew up with it. So I've seen all 78 episodes probably a dozen times plus each. So I just have to probably run through them one more time and, and refresh myself with a with a few of the, the high points. But Yeah, that would like, be excellent. That's not a... Um, that's a series that I know from as a kid, but I don't actually know as an adult. All right. And then the last announcement um, for the live listeners, the Misdirected Mark Forums Dice Bag Giveaway 
Uh, if you're watching live, it ends on Friday. Friday night at midnight, boom, end of story. Everybody who's got their introductory posts in on the MMM, MMM, Misdirected Mark, word scramble. Everybody who's got their post in on the forums by Friday night at midnight is eligible to win, uh, as long as you're not a show host, <laughs> a member of the network. Um, and uh, I will be compiling the winners uh, over the weekend, and next week's show, we will announce those winners. So if Very you nice. haven't gotten Nicely in done. and you're listening live, got a couple more days. All right. And that brings us to Phil. Drink a little water. No, oh, I didn't even. I didn't even bring water. I'll just. I'll do it lightly. All right. Workshop. Workshop. We're going to be talking about old games tonight. How old? Well, we'll talk about that. But they're going to be old, older, and well, not so old. But anyway, we're going to talk about the nostalgia trap. We're going to talk about how to prep them and play them for people who've never played old games before here in the workshop. Don't suck. Thanks. So, uh, so during our downtime. Well, we had a bunch of discussions about getting back to gaming, and this topic crept up. And so tonight, we're going to talk about playing older games. Uh, when you get as old as we are, you wind up with a lot of old games. And while we all continue to buy new games month after month after month, there's still something to be said for older games. There's some that are a lot of fun. If you're eyeing your collection and it's your one something old, we're here for you. If you're a new gamer and you're curious about older games you might want to run, we're here for you as well. Because tonight, we're going to talk about why you might want to run some older games. We talk about the dangers of nostalgia, the pitfalls you're going to run into, and how you might introduce these games to newer players. All right, and of course, to get started, we should probably see if Phil has any wonderful definitions for us after I hit this. Behold! You are in the presence of Definition Panda. So the funny part is, we have like one definition, um, and we just need to kind of set some boundaries uh, for another term. So we're talking about older games tonight, but like, what does older games mean? Right. That, that's not like a codified definition. So for our discussion, we're going to have to put some boundaries around it just so that we have um, just so we have some frame of reference as we're talking about things. So tonight we're going to just talk our, our older games, quote, older games is going to be anything that is 10 years or older, right? It's arbitrary, but I just like, I wanted to draw some lines to, you know, but 10 years or older, um, and that means that we're going to be talking about games from 2011 on back. Um, and so to jog your memory of where we were game wise in 2011, uh, let me just reference a few of them. Uh, Ashen Stars by Pelgrane. That's the, uh, gumshoe sci-fi game that Robin Laws wrote. Uh, the One Ring by Cubicle Seven. I believe now there'll be another One Ring game coming out by another company, right? I think Free League's yep, really. uh, about to do it, right? Uh, and Mouse Guard by Burning Wheel Press. Those games all came out in 2011. So um, there's a whole bunch of games that some of us might consider relatively new that actually came at, that fall into this quote older games category. But we're also going to just really focus on games from the 80s, the 90s, and like the early aughts as well. So take our quote older games with a little uh, grain of salt. Um, but uh, it is what it is. So we might be making references up and down the timeline of games. Mm -hmm. Our one definition for tonight is nostalgia, a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. Uh, in essence, I have fond memories of something, so it must be good. Um, 
and we'll get into the dangers of that statement uh, as we get into the rest of the segment. So Barney Stinson says, new is always better, but we all know that's not true. So Jerry, what are some of the misconceptions that people may have that are keeping them from playing older games? Well, there's a lot of myths about older games. When it comes to older games, um, people have a lot of misconceptions about them. These misconceptions are often born out of some truth for some games, but are not true as generalizations. Um, for example, we're going to talk about these misconceptions, explain where some of these come from, examples of when these misconceptions are true, and examples of whether or not. So here are some misconceptions that we have with older games. Uh, the first one is that they're hard to find, right? This misconception comes from the idea that you have to find the physical copy of the game. And for some older games, um, you, you know, you're going to have to find them in stores that carry older games or hit up eBay, things like that. Um, more, um, more obscure games are going to be harder to find in PDF. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that this is especially true if the game had a license. Um, so for instance, it's actually pretty hard to find PDFs for, uh, last unicorn games version of Star Trek. Um, it, it's not even that easy to find the books for Lug Trek, uh, but they're out there. Um, also, and we'll talk about this later in the segment, box sets are sometimes hard. Like sometimes you can find them in PDF format, but if you're actually trying to, you know, a lot of, um, eighties games were box sets, even some of the supplements were box sets. And those sometimes you got to like, um, hunt down on eBay or hope to stumble on one in a used, you know, in a used section of a game store, uh, that kind of thing. But, Thanks to PDFs, um, there are a lot of older games that are actually converted to um, to electronic format, right? So uh, you can find just about anything for Traveler um, if you look hard enough. Um, Star Frontiers uh, has, you know, had a whole, like, like everything you could find for Star Frontiers, Gamma World, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, Drive-Thru has a ton of older games that have been scanned into PDF, but it should be noted that when older games are scanned into PDF, that a lot of the features that you love about PDF, like um, word searching, copying text, indexes, things like that, don't go through, right? Because they're, yeah. they're image files. So like yeah. I have a bunch of um, PDFs of Underground, and uh, they're pretty rough, actually, because you can't like text string search them and things like that. You like literally can just flip the pages uh, and read them. And some of them didn't even scan great because they had um, watermark uh, stuff on the pages. So it can sometimes with older games be hit and miss. If you if you go find like old traveler stuff, you're not going to have any problem at all. Old traveler stuff is like black and white typeset. Like super, like even though it won't um, scan with character in a lot of cases, it'll still be pretty readable. I would like to just t- toss in one little introduction that people who are looking to collect older games, other places to look would be Humble Bundle and Bundle of Holding. They often do bundles of old out of print games. Yep. And you can get a ton of old PDFs of stuff all in one. You know, they'll have here's, you know, all of the Traveler Black books from the early 80s, you know, for $25 and get the whole pack. So if you are interested in those sorts of things, I would suggest getting on the, the notification list for Bundle of Holding and Humble Bundle. Yeah. Because they often have really good collections of old games. <clears throat> and, and I will say that Bundle of Holding often recycles bundles. So yes. if, if you missed a bundle, um, it has a, it will like, 
it will show up again. Yeah, there's a chance at some it's coming point. back, yeah. And usually with some extra stuff jammed into it. Yep. Cool. Jerry, tell us about um tell us about another um uh misconception. There's a misconception there's lack of support and lack of new material. And while this might be true that some game companies are done making new material for games, or if their license ran out, they're not allowed to make new things for the game, but there are large online communities that still make lots of new content for these games. Um, for example, there are web archives of the Facebook stats, the Marvel characters. As a matter of fact, Marvel's entire Facebook catalog is still available for free online. Yeah. Um, and there's a separate group that is making additional books uh, for the Marvel file even today. I think that's like 37 volumes. Um, and I worked for a small publisher who for years did game books for the Fantasy Clip decades after it stopped being published. And so until they re-released the Fantasy Clip uh, about a year and a half ago, we were able to get other things online that supported that game for years. The Star Frontiersman was a um was they, a yeah. <laughs> they they recently got a cease and desist from Watsy though so <laughs> they uh, were allowed to keep their old stuff though yeah, yeah they were allowed to keep up their old stuff though yeah, but yeah they yeah. were a um <laughs> they were making magazines for Star Frontiers yeah. they only got in trouble because they mixed in stuff from Dragon Magazine oops they worked it out with Watsy it's on their web page okay. um another misconception is that um and again. <laughs> Maybe misconception, maybe not. Right, the rules are clunky or complicated. Um, the idea that modern games are built um, off the successes and mistakes of older games, and thus older games are not really as refined. Right, like this is where this um, misconception comes from, and it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Because for sure there are older games that are complicated. Right, Rollmaster, for instance, um, and there are certainly games that are clunky. Like Gangbusters, if you ever listened to our exploratory play of Gangbusters. Mm -hmm. um, but there are actually plenty of elegant games that were made in the past um, that are actually quite playable, even by today's standards, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Whispering Vault mm -hmm. is a game that would totally be playable today. Um, Marvel's Face Rip, like, that, that nev like that's never lost a following. There's still people who love that, um, that version. Pre-COVID, I used to run it once a year as a small, as, as a small like mini campaign. Yep, absolutely, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Witchcraft was a favorite of Bob's and mine. CJ it was CJ Sorella, right? Yeah, CJ Corella. CJ Corella, yep. Yeah. Witchcraft, fantastic urban horror uh, uh, game from the nineties. Yeah. Uh, the next thing I hear is that the books are too long or too big. There's a theory that all the game books back then were giant hardcover books, and some of them were, uh, depending on your era. But what I remember a lot about the other games, they were really pretty thin. And you look at the original Dungeon Master's Guide and Player's Handbook for D&D. They were about half the size of the books we have today. Yeah. Um, you look at um, most... I, I'll be honest, I think this kind of comes more in the in the noddies than anything else. Because I can't think of many game books from that era that were big, long, and, and big, big, long giant books. Do you think of any off the top of your head that would be a giant hardback book from back then? I mean, the DMG, first edition DMG is kind of thick, and you don't even need most of it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you didn't... Yeah. Well, and I think we did giant book, have I think stuff like DCC and and, yeah. and, and Tallis and, and you know, those kind of things, and I'm like, nah, we didn't have I mean, anything like that back in the day. First edition Dungeon Master's guy with the thickness of my thumb. That's about yeah. it. Warhammer. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. That was a big book. Oh, that was a big book. Okay, that, one that, was, that, that was a yeah. DCC book. But, that was a big book. But even that was that old. Yeah. But you look at eh, mid-80s. 
But you start looking at um, other games, though. A lot of them were really thin. Um, the Traveler books were all tiny, digest-sized publications. Top Secret SI book had two main books in the box set, a 96-page player's guide, and what is it, a 64-page administrator's guide? Yeah, um, most of the game was in the player's guide. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the the rule book for first and second edition Village of Anthes had everything you needed to run the games. If you bought the second edition D&D book, that was everything you needed to play the game. All the other things they put out were just modules, collections of, of bad guys, and a Dungeon Master screen. You could and run while, the game for years on that. And while Champions wasn't that big, Hero System book would become a tome over time. Champions yeah. 3rd Edition was a pretty thick book. Yeah. And then yeah. Champion, or um, Hero, Heroes System yeah, 5 System or whatever. Yeah. You could bludgeon a person to death with that book. Champions is tricky because Champions, the first edition of Champions was actually Champions 1, Champions 2, Champions 3, Champions 4. And then when they put second edition, they just combined them into a thicker book. So Champions might fall somewhere in between because you really couldn't run the game much with the very first rule book. It was very, very thin. It was still yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a very fun game. Mechton, original Mechton was a thin book. You played the whole game with that book. There you go. 64 pages. All right. Um, All right. Phil, you might want to just center up a little bit. You're a little off. How that? Um, so now that we've dispelled a few myths, Phil, why might someone want to play some of these older games? Yeah, I mean, there's no single reason why you want to jump into um, a list of, you know, you know, of these games, but like we can, you know, we do what we do, right? We compile the list of some more of the common reasons why you might be interested. Um, and, you know, as we say with any list that we put together, um, it is uh, not in any particular order, nor is it comprehensive, right? So there may be plenty of other reasons, but we tried to hit on some of the main reasons uh, that you might be interested in trying some older games. So uh, one reason we, they're historically popular. Um, some games have been popular since they came out. And they need to have a fan base. Games like Call of Cthulhu. Seventh edition Call of Cthulhu is still compatible with first edition Call of Cthulhu. People still love it. Traveler has never quite lost its fan base, even if you lose your character and character generation. Um, Vampire the Masquerade and the various vampire things has been popular since it came out. And as we've mentioned many, many times, Marvel Face Rip uh, has been a game that's just been popular since it came out uh, because it was a novel idea that still works. So, yeah. Um, another reason you might be interested is uh, they were important in the history of game design, right? So things that we take for granted in today's games came from somewhere. Um, and a lot of them came through these games in the past. So, for instance, if you look at like anything from the, you know, the original Forge games, Dogs in the Vineyard, My Life with Master, etc. Like all of those have... Um, serious building blocks to games that we're you know used to today uh amber diceless is another um is another fascinating game i mean like it's probably one of the most popular diceless rpgs uh chainmail those kinds of things right so they were they were important so if you're into game design trying some of these games kind of get gives you a chance of seeing like the evolution of games Next thing you're going to see is there a lot of games had novel rule designs that, while there's things we expect today, back then, this is when they first came out. Uh, these might not be as iconic as the games that we just mentioned, but there are plenty of games that had novel rules that you might find interesting in how they interacted, like E6 Star Wars and its dice pools, uh, Conspiracy X, which I have no idea how that played. Oh, it, 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 I, I still think, 
and I think Bob will back me up yep. on this. Conspiracy X has one of the most the first edition Conspiracy X has one of the most interesting hand to hand systems yep. that I've ever seen in a game. I've never seen another game do it do it I like that Conspiracy hand-to-hand X. combat system on the table any day of the week and play it. Yep. I'd be interested in trying that. And then DC Heroes, which had a <laughs> um very interesting and complicated chart system that uh um is usable, but and went into other games, but but had some interesting sliding back and forth concepts that moved on to other games. It was so. an interesting. It was an interesting design in that it used a um, rating system called APs, mm-hmm. and it was it was built on a logarithmic scale. Yes. So the scale encompasses like Jimmy Olsen through Superman mm-hmm. on one scale, but it also had really interesting things like because it was logarithmic. When you had to do something like um, how far Superman could throw a battleship, you just needed to know the units for those things. Like how many units of strength does Superman have? How many units of weight is a battleship? And then like, I think you um, subtracted them or something. And then the resulting number was the distance that he could throw the battleship. It was very interesting in in that respect. And I actually played a lot of DC heroes, even though I'm not a huge uh, DC comic fan, I spent a summer playing DC heroes. And then of course that um, system Megs was transferred also into underground. Ah, I didn't know that. So we played, but we played uh, a lot of DC heroes and then we played a lot of blood of heroes, which was the generic version when they lost license to DC comics. Um, and, and it was fun to play. It was just, it was, it was, uh, it was during the summer when our GM changed game systems like every two months. Yeah. And so we kept the same characters that we created in one game system and bounced them from system to system until we found a system that we liked. And we eventually went back to Pacer where the characters were designed. Okay. But it was, it was interesting to play. And I, I liked it. It's, it's a little, uh, I liked the add subtract system. I don't know if it works better at a lower scale. Uh, like any game where you have, um, 80s era Superman running around, it's tough to play any game with that kind of system. Yeah. And so that's they did a really good job. I think I think DC Heroes Megs handles Superman better than Face Rip would. Uh, I, I would agree. Yeah. Uh, and because <clears throat> from a stat standpoint. Yeah. So okay. All right, what's the what's, what's the next? next one, Phil? Uh novel settings. Right? You might be attracted from a setting from a game from the uh from the past that isn't um that hasn't been remade today. Um, again, I'm going to cite Whispering Vault, which is like a really trippy um, horror slash supers because it's like a little of both. It's like a horror supers setting. Um, paranoia. Um, even though there's a new version of Paranoia, like that setting's a little different than the original Paranoia. Um, Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, that was a hell of a game uh, yes. in its time. Uh, and Tune. Tune's a game that you don't like. Like you don't really see anybody having remade. Yeah. <clears throat> well, lastly, maybe you just enjoyed it. You have fond memories of playing the game. Whether it was a good or bad system, you made us had fun playing the game itself. Yeah, so I'm going to interrupt right there because that is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. We had a whole show about that, but there are reasons why that might not be a good reason to play older games. And we call this the nostalgia trap. Bob's 100% correct. We're talking about old games. We have to factor in the trap of nostalgia. We defined it earlier. It's the thing that something is good because you have positive memories about it, and that's the tricky part. Memories are never accurate, and a lot of times they're going to be fallible. Um, we may have found memories of a game we had a good time playing, or because we played it with good friends and we had a good time with them. 
we forget that we really didn't like the system, but the system was difficult to play. Amen. Um, I'm a huge fan of um, Vampire, right? The original Vampire. But like when I ran it in the 90s, we didn't even use the actual mechanics. Like we made our own diceless version of of the game. And I'm and I will still tell you that I'm a huge fan of Vampire. But if I was like to go back and play it as written, I, I probably wouldn't be thrilled. <laughs> I ran D&D for over a decade. And every year we fiddled with the rules more and more and more until a lot of it didn't resemble <laughs> the original game. Or at least we fiddled with the things that didn't didn't work and uh that's okay but i realized that if i sat down to play an actual D game right now i probably would not be happy if it was anything over street level uh and I, that's okay um next there's gonna be a chance you may not have run the game correctly back then but what you remember is fun is that you're actually remembering the fun of the game as it was written so we just talked about it. so no uh yeah i mean I, I don't think i ever ran palladium correctly um I think we took some liberties with the combat system and the um like how many actions you got or what you could dodge or parry or whatever. And um I don't think I care, right? Like we we had fun playing it, but I also don't remember how we played it wrong. So like if I was to pick up Palladium now and go back and run it, I'm not even sure I would remember how to play it the way I played it in the late 80s, right? So like, yeah. it, I might wind up running it and then being like, oh, this is not how I remember this game. Yeah. So uh, nostalgia aside, let's say you want to take an older game out for a spin. What kind of things might we encounter, Phil? Yeah, so when, when you're looking at older games, there are a few things that are going to be true in general, right? And again, every time we say something in general, like, you know, there's an exception for every one of these, yeah. please don't jump all over us. Um, but there are some generalities that you can expect when you play older, um, play older games. And there are some things we'll talk about, uh, in the second half of this little, of this section that are kind of indicative of certain decades of games, right? Like trends and things like that. But, um, here's some things that are pretty common when you, when you play older games. Right. First, you're going to have much less narrative control for players. Um, and the older the game it is, the more true this is. Um, older games really put most of the narrative control with the GM. Um, really old games, the GM did all the dice rolling. The players never saw any of the dice. They were just told this succeeded or failed. Um, back then, players had narrative authority for the character died, but you won't often see a lot of it getting to find other parts of the world. Um, now, the GM could easily add uh, change this by adding and leading questions. And you can always share some layer of control, but they weren't designed this way. Yeah, we've talked about this on, on the, I think, this show and on Pandas as well, right? You can yeah. always inject yeah. that back in. Yeah. Um, you're also bound to see more pass-fail mechanics. Fail-forward and partial su successes are going to be more of the exception. Most games are pass-fail um, with the occasional critical success. And then if the game is like a little extra um, uh, cruel, then it also has critical failure. Right. Like critical failure is often less common, but for the most part, pass fail is going to be kind of the norm here. Um, you could, if you're playing this and wanted to like kind of spruce it up, um, you could do some house ruling here, do a little hack and put in, um, you know, um, your own partial successes. You can easily do fail forward. Right. Like that's not a big deal. Um, one easy trick that I've always found for dealing with pass fail mechanics um, is framing what the check is for 
right? Like it's not a pick lock check. It's a pick lock check without getting caught. Right. Right. Like that's a, I learned that from burning wheel and that's like a great way to kind of skirt games that have pass fail mechanics to, um, to make them into something that looks more like partial successes. Yeah. I'd be interested to find out just for at some point, we should talk about some gaming archaeology. What was the first game to actually come up with a legitimate pass fail, uh, pass with complication, fail forward mechanic? Yeah. I think no, no, where not, it actually came from. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, like the history of that is. If anyone knows, tweet that out to us. It'd be very yeah. interesting. All right. The next thing is, uh, most older games did not have any safety tools. Um, they don't even make reference to them. Um, uh, and while not being a dick was kind of a thing back then, there were no codified ways for establishing boundaries, and there were no ways for giving and revoking consent. And there were games that openly uh, kind of encouraged the other. So you have to be careful with that in older games. Some games tried to take consent away from players a little bit, and that's something you got to be careful of. So you want to fix this by bringing your own safety tools to the table every time. Yep. And use them, employ them, explain them, and you can fix that job real quick. Phil? Yeah, that and like that one's that's uh pretty easy to fix because mm-hmm. you know, not not every game comes with their own safety tools, so bring your own. Um the next thing you're gonna run into potentially mm-hmm. is problematic content. Yes. These games are a function of being written in the past. They are a function of being written um in many cases by less diverse groups of writers. Um, common things that you're going to run into is lack of representation, uh, poor stereotypes, mm-hmm. and a host of isms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even going to be limited to the writing. Um, artwork is another case. Like there's a whole run of D20, um, D20 splat books and stuff that have like super sexist artwork, right? Like yeah. chainmail bikini girls. And I mean, in fact, there was a particular line of games or D20 products, and I can't remember it though like prided themselves on these like really um, sexist, you know, big bosom women on covers and stuff. So just be prepared, right? You're, you are picking up a historical artifact. Um, Some of them you may just not even want to touch, right? Like some of you may just look at and be like, nah, hard pass. Um, Other ones you may just have to kind of um, address the problematic issues and kind of, um, work around them however that's going to work with your group so you know just just be aware um just be aware of that as you go into some of you know some of these older games yep. uh, the next thing is that a lot of them encourage antagonistic gms uh, the bfi of your players concept was not promoted much in older games and a lot of games are written in such a way that they actively encourage the gm to trick, undermine punish pc actions um, you'll read some old GM hints in some of these books that say, you know, your players may think this, let them think that, and then screw them over later on. And I'm not, I'm not sitting here making fun of it with mustache growing. There were actually designs of the idea that the GM's job was to punish the players very antagonistically, especially in a lot of the, what we now call heartbreaker games, but, you know, a lot of the D and D derivatives where there was somebody sitting alone in their little room typing up their own game system. Um, I'll show those players. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're little dog too. Um, right. Like some of them have gleeful descriptions, right? How to twist player choices, um, to keep them from succeeding. And, um, like it, it's done a lot of, like it's messed up GMing for a while, right? Like at the very least, GMing should be neutral. I'm 
actually a proponent of be a fan of your players. So I actually skew in that direction, but um, you know, it, they weren't good. There's, there's one exception to this, which is paranoia, right? Cause the yeah. rules of paranoia will tell you um, to arbitrarily make stuff up and waste your um, waste, your players um, when they step out of line. But when you're getting into playing paranoia, that is what you've signed up for. I think it was referring to wasting their clones, but yeah, you're not supposed to kill players. I have interrogated players in the in a paranoia game, but yes, you are only supposed to actually interrogate and waste uh, characters and exactly. clones at that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, looking across the decades, let's talk about some general trains you can expect. Yeah, like so if you're if you're hunting for '80s games, right? Um, get ready for box sets. Um, I I actually miss box sets, right? Like I loved box sets when I was a kid. Like. Um, the typical game came in a box. You opened it up. It had, um, two to three books. Like the DC Heroes game, the original one, that box was like chocked full of stuff. Like it had like, um, like three books in it, some maps. It had cards for the characters. Like it was, it was just full of goodness. Um, Face Rip was also the same way, right? Face, Face Rip, um, was in a box. So 80s games, a lot of box sets. Um, Star Frontiers and the little oh. chips chit- and maps. Yes. Gamma, World. Um, Gamma World had it. Top Secret, like all of Boot Hill. Um, now, now, some of the box set things help. The people who played Star Frontiers the first time, when you opened up that box, you had the two rule books. Which one was the, the intro book, one was the full book. And you know, just, every GM I knew took one look at those maps and all those little chits encounters, individual little pictures on them. And you could play games just with that alone. The maps oh. encouraged table play. Oh, we played so much of um, chasing cars and hover bikes around that city grid mm-hmm. and so much of that. Absolutely. Beautiful. Uh, 80s games are also a lot of percentile dice mechanics, um, especially TSR. TSR went through a whole phase in the 80s um, where they were just in love with percentiles. Yeah. Um, and percentile mechanics often come with many, many modifiers. So like, if you look at the original Star Frontiers, um, you're going to make a percentile roll to shoot, but then like the GM has like two columns of potential modifiers to, to knock off, uh, 5% here, 10% there. Like, are you on a moving vehicle? Is this long range? Like, and so what you would wind up with is like, okay, I have a 79 minus 10 minus five, uh, minus seven, right? So the term mathy, right comes to mind this is where like later when you see something like advantage and you're like oh advantage seems so smart roll 2d20 right when you play something like 80 star frontiers you're like you're knocking like these things off and and the gm has to like truck through this list and like try to find them all every time you're going to make a shot it's not as much fun um also 80s games had a lot of tables um so the face rip table, um, the hand to hand combat tables and top secret, like tables, 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 uh, role master criticals are yeah. some of the, um, most iconic, um, uh, tables there are. In fact, so much so that DCC, um, copied them over to, uh, DCC. I gotta um, say, I do love the random tables, not necessarily for combat, because I love when folks would just have random tables stuck out of it. oh i always like random tables yeah. but but for instance like face rip you can't play without the table yeah but you can use that table to play everything 
Oh, exactly. But like that thing sits, like everybody has a copy of it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because everything you do goes through that table. Yeah, that's right. All right, Jerry, take us 10 years forward. What happens in the 90s? The 90s, we get a lot more books and a lot less box sets. Uh, There was a big trend towards breaking up rules into multiple books to get you to buy more things. Um, This was the beginning of the concept of how do we get more money out of players? Because the GMs bought everything. So let's give more supplements, more expansions. Um, much darker content, lots of urban fantasy, lots of horror, dark conspiracy, um, and basically the, the gritty, um, grimdark, basically. If you, uh, it's, it's the best description. The Zack be, Snyder years. Yeah. yeah I mean, if, if you look, if you look at the eighties as being like eighties X-Men and, and bright colors and all that, the nineties were, um, the dark night and, and that sort of thing brought in. Oh, it's um, so, it's so true. Like, so much black and white horror artwork from the nineties. Yeah, really bad horror artwork. And then we had weird settings. Lots of things, extraplanar stuff, gods jumping from universe to universe. Um, and just strange places to play in that might not necessarily fit every niche, but work really well for that one game. Yeah. Uh, when you get into the two thousands, get ready for the D20. The early 2000s were dominated by D20 games, and um, if you if you currently make fun of the concept of oh I can make this in a 5e game, well that all came from I could make this a D20 game because there is a D20 for every flavor in this decade. Um, The big ones, obviously, you had um, you had third edition D and D, D20 modern. That was a, a big one for um, Bob and I. Um, Mutants and Masterminds was your D20 Supers game, but it wasn't the only one. There were more. Um, and it was really where the OGL came out. So um, it's where you start getting small press yeah. D20 products as well. And like everywhere. like You had military D20 games. You had horror. You had the fantasy stuff. You- you had supplement upon supplement upon supplement for all of them. It was wild. I think yeah. the 2000s is really where the word splat book took on a whole new, yeah. new oh, vibrant meaning. I mean, the original splat books, we all know, you know, we all remember as the TSR, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, um, the complete, yeah, yeah, the complete the elf, the complete gladiator, whatever. <laughs> but man, by the 2000s, like, the glut of D20 books. That's why it crashed, right? Like yeah, the glut yeah. of D20 books was a massive, but also in the two thousands is the forge games, right? So these are all the early indie games that were born out of the forge um, discussion group, right? So this is, this is where um, burning wheel came from. Um, this is where dogs in the vineyard came from and all those. So the two thousands have this real uh, interesting dichotomy because commercially, uh, like you're, it's all D20, right? D&D, D20 fantasy. And it's like, and everybody's got a fantasy D20 book to tack onto, you know, you know, onto D&D. And then in this like kind of weird, quiet corner, although I think the forge was anything but quiet, <laughs> you've got the forge churning out like these real cutting edge games that by today's standards, I don't know, if you would can quite consider them cutting edge, but for their time yeah. against the backdrop of the D20 era, it was pretty impressive. 
Yeah, they they were hacking through the weeds with a machete there, finding some some uh, some hidden stuff. Yeah, and there was some weird 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 things. And one more thing I think I should add to the eighties. Eighties was the advent of the uh, the plethora of universal role playing games. Oh God, GURPS, GURPS, Hero System, things like that, where they tried to make one game setting, one game system for all settings. Yeah. It oh. still creeps up here and there, but personally, man. my feeling is one size does not fit all. But that's just me. No. I could almost be never. <laughs> no, right. no, and that, no, that's exactly it. So I think there's anything there. Okay, go ahead, Bob. So as older players, going back to play older games is one thing because we pretty much all have the same expectations of those games because we played through those times. So what if you want to take an older game and introduce it to some newer players? Is there anything special we can do to introduce these people to? these older games. Well, for the most part, teaching new games, new gamers older games isn't going to be all that different than any game out there. Um, but if they're used to more modern games, you might have to deal with some of the trends we mentioned above, such as lack of narrative authority, tactile mechanics, etc. Um, but what we can notice issues are going to be with settings. Depending on the game you're playing and the age of your characters, some settings just might not make any sense. Yeah, for instance, beyond a certain age, the tropes of the tropes that you would be used to in tune that, you know, Toon draws heavily on classic Warner Brothers cartoons, the old Tom and Jerry, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, at past a certain age, those things aren't tropes that um, that younger people understand. Like, my kids have no concept of, like, the Acme, you know, mail away, you know, um, you know, like mail away to Acme for, you know, your um, earthquake pills or your, you know, mm-hmm. flying dynamite. Yep. Or whatever, right? Like no yep. reference to that. Um, before the last edition of Paranoia, um, the Paranoia settings main bad guys were communists, not in the good communist way, but like Soviets. Um, yes. You know, commie mutant traitors was exactly. like the main you know phrase for that game. And um, there's a lot of like kind of built in like '80s Cold War, um, you know. Uh, tropes and things like that in in old paranoia that um if you were born after the wall fell i'm thinking of schmitty here in the chat room right like (laughs) might just not like ring with you and then you get to something like price of freedom from west end games was all about the soviet invasion of the u.s like if again if you're like you know if you were born or you know matured after the wall fell like you might be like why would the soviets invade the u.s where like if you were um, of our age, like you grew up, um, you know, watching Red Dawn. Like I couldn't have been more excited to play Price of Freedom when it came out because it was basically Red Dawn, the role playing game. And yes. I got to go, you know, I got to go um, fight communists who took over my hometown. But that's not going to jive. Like that's not going to settle with um, with certain younger players. Like you're, you might, you like what you think might be super exciting. Like it might not click with them the same way. Wolverines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you want to explain some of these tropes. And even then, these settings may not resonate the same depth with little people who are alive or older during those times. Um, I've talked before about trying to run a Marvel face trip game, which was heavily, the game was designed around 80s comic book tropes. And people who grew up with 90s comic books have a very difficult time playing in 80s comic book tropes because it's not grim dark, you can't kill everybody and that sort of thing. And some players just just will have trouble. They might not enjoy it as much. Um, or you might have to have them do some research and read some comic books and that before you start that. 
Same thing with explaining something like the price of freedom. In addition, some of the older games don't, don't take, take advantage of things that we take for granted today. So we're going to have to have a primer. Um, Conspiracy X takes place. Sorry, glad you, you take this video. No, it's fine. It, Conspiracy X, one of my favorite games from the 90s. Like, mm-hmm. that takes place in the late 1990s. So you have to remember, like, when you read the material, right? Like, there's no smartphones. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a baby internet back then, oh, right? Yeah, you couldn't... Baby. You couldn't do all like you couldn't do all the things you could do now. Like that game is built um, with that technology in mind. So like when you read some of the things the aliens can do, you're like later, you're like, yeah, but everybody could do that. Right. So you have to kind of like remind people like, hey, we're playing in the 90s. So, you know, here are some of the things we need to remember. Right. Like Internet came on CDs, like 1400 hours of of AOL, that kind of thing. I've always thought when they talk about the fact that, you know, while the flip phone was obviously the, 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 the love child of the old Star Trek original series communicator, if your phone was a, was a 19, was a 1960s era communicator from Star Wars, you'd be pissed because all it could do was talk to other people. Today's yes. phones are so much cooler. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. But so that's the coverage on why you want to play some older games as well as what you should be on the lookout for. And so we're going to head into our break, but before we do that, Bob, is going to tell us about another show on the Mr. Mark Network. Hey, have you people heard about Django Hustle? Like, check this thing out. Go and train alongside fellow students Eric Farmer and Eli Kurtz in Django Hustle. Eric and Eli make their kung fu stronger by watching wuxia films, then discussing how to apply their observations to game design. There's some good stuff in there. Um, if you're a fan at all of, of, of the genre, um, if you're like, you know, Shaw Brothers for life you know oh yeah go check this stuff out um good times um informative uh, i think you'll enjoy it all right so yeah we got we got a lot of youngins in the uh in the yeah. chat room <laughs> and that that thing with the uh with conspiracy x in the 90s always gets me because it's like if you it the gap if the gap is really big it seems to be way easier like you take a bunch of kids from now and you're like okay victorian london like their right. brains can conceptually go, Victorian London. You know, there was there was no phone. You know, if there was a car, you know, you had to, to crank the you know crank the thing on the front to, you know. But we were probably doing a horse a, a horse drawn carriage. You know, like stuff like that. Like there's there's some mm-hmm. concepts that are easy to to parse, but from mm-hmm. now back to 1990, it seems to be more difficult to to break that apart <laughs> easily um, sometimes. If but I yeah. had to explain how much a 24-inch monitor would weigh in the 1990s. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I had to get rid of a 24-inch monitor once, and it was like 800 pounds. I barely when, got it to my car. It's really funny when uh, sometimes um, we were talking uh, while I was on vacation. I had a chance. Um, JT, our good friend JT, came up. Um and went to dinner with Andy, Senda, and um, and Senda's kiddo, and I, and we were talking about land parties, yeah. and I was like, what people don't remember about land parties in the '90s was how big everything was that you had to carry to somebody's yeah. house. Like, your 17-inch monitor weighed like 20 pounds, yeah. like, and you had to carry it like with two like two arms wrapped around it, and then you had a tower. I had special tower. 
I bought this one company put out special straps and, and packaging. So like you could put your tower, wrap it with these with these things that, that snap together that had a pocket on one side for the keyboard and the yep. mice and the cables. And then you carried that with a handle for your for your thing. And then there was another one that fit around the monitor so that you could kind of get one hand on it. It was not easy to carry it with one hand because it weighed so much. But, yeah, and then everybody would get together and then plug in all their stuff. The, the power drain on whatever location, like, went through the roof. Oh, it was so – I mean, it was it – was, it was a great time. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong. My nostalgia for the 90s is actually quite high. Like, oh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the birth of the internet. Um, I really enjoyed the beginning of cell phones and stuff like that. Um, but it is comical. Like, how different. <clears throat> like, I'm just looking at my my um, my Mac Mini that's on my desk, oh, yeah. right? I, I couldn't have even gotten a – I could have – I couldn't – I wouldn't have been able to get a portable hard drive. Yeah. This size, right? Like, let alone yep. a full functional computer. Yep. Um, it's it's hilarious how uh, and no one had. I mean, laptops were um, laptops were like a big deal. Like laptops yeah. was something you got from work. Yep. Uh-huh. Like you didn't have like you didn't have a laptop. Yeah, and they certainly weren't super slim and, and ultra light. No. Oh they God, were, they were heavy. Yeah. Beasts. Yeah, my, my they first, were like they were my thicker. First, my my first cell phone was a bag phone. My first laptop was. This thick, and I got it because uh, the the consulting company my sister worked for got new laptops. They just took all the old ones and gave them away. Yeah, yeah. And and I needed an external hard drive to run anything, a yep. disk drive to run any disks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, right. uh, Jerry mentioned um, the the Star Trekification of science. Like, mm-hmm. there's a ton of of technology that uh, that was born out of that show, tablets phones you know all of that stuff but one of my favorite things and we've talked about this when we were doing the um all the star trek watch throughs especially ds9 because ds9 was really notorious for this is like having multiple tablets for documents (laughs) right they'd be sitting there with like 10 tablets like sorting through them it's like Like, wait a minute you've got a, a, a central computer core that has teraflops or teraquads of data teraquads yeah and your tablet can only hold one document yes come on hilarious <laughs> but again it's the um it's that paradox of like sci-fi is only so smart right so yeah. like in the 90s like we didn't even conceive the idea that like a tablet would just have multiple documents on it right yeah. so like tablets just had one document each it's yeah, like buying a those Kindle. Are, those are the those are the book. challenges, the the different eras that you live in. If you don't have those kinds of 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 experiences in your own history, getting that across can sometimes be a good challenge. Of playing traveler, where the uh, computers on your ship were measured in how many tons of space they took up, and that a basic computer was, I think, ten tons of space. Um, you know, yeah. and and took and took up ten percent of your shit, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I was just typing into the chat room that if you have, that number. if you ever look in the <laughs> Trek manuals, um, the computer core like on the Enterprise D is like multiple decks. Multiple decks, yeah, yeah, like it's like it rivals the warp core in yep. in height. It's hilarious. That's some yeah. wacky shit. All right, we should jump back into the next half of the uh, the yep. the second half of the topic. So welcome back. 
We are continuing our discussion of older games with the following question. Uh, question number one, name a, name a few older games you would like to run or play again. Jerry? Well, I'm going to skip all the ones you guys mentioned and say, um, I want to play Face Rip again. I love Face Rip. I think it's a great game. Um, I have always loved Mechton, um, especially uh, the second and kind of second and a half iteration, um, both Mechton 2 and um, the game that they based Bubblegum Crisis and all those role-playing games on. Um, I enjoyed Heavy Gear a lot. I think the setting was excellent. I think the game system is fairly streamlined. It needs a little bit of trimming, but it's not bad. Um, I want to play Paranoia because Paranoia is great. I enjoyed Bidorf role-playing the game. There's a little nostalgia there, but it's 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 role master without all the charts and numbers. But yeah, I it's think like a friendlier version of Merp, or a friendly I, version of role master. And I think that the new version of Middle Earth Adventures that's coming out is going to kind of get back to that. The the uh, fifth edition Adventures in Middle Earth book captures most of that nostalgia. Um, I like Cyberpunk. I'll play it just about any edition except for third edition. Um, yes, and, third edition. And I want to run Chainmail again. We played Chainmail. The actual original Chainmail um, is playable as a role-playing game. And I had a, a GM who ran it for a couple of years where, uh, off and on where we were basically questing like the Captain of Alvin Adventures. And even I ran it a couple of times. And I've got multiple copies of the original rules. Um, I, like, I just want to play it again. But some of the songs you guys are going to mention, I also want to play. So I'm going to jump to Bob and let him mention some. So, Bob? Yeah, I, I looked at Phil's list when I went in to fill in my list, and I went, oh, yeah, that, 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 that. <laughs> but I will start by saying um, I have had this itch to play some BXD&D, some basic expert, um, for a while now. Um, I have super heavy nostalgia with that because that was my second longest game group um, from back in the day. Um, we played that for years, um, and that was a ton of fun. Uh, and I think a lot of that stuff still holds up. Um, one thing that I would love to get to the table and sit and play just for giggles is Gamma World. I have the first edition box set. Um, I used to doodle little robots. I used to make uh, little like overhead views of different bots with different, like this bot looks like this, and it's got two arms and and this and, like different shapes and stuff. I've got like a whole box full of of stuff like that. Um, so I have a lot of nostalgia about that. And then uh, mm-hmm. I will briefly mention and let Phil expand a little more, uh, Witchcraft, Conspiracy Acts, Whispering Vault. We've mentioned these before. Um, those three games, I think, still hold up sufficiently that you could throw those down on the table and have a good time. With them. And I would love to, to take all three of them for a spin again. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm... Just going down that line, right? Conspiracy X, um, I think is totally playable, right? I, I think that game, I think that game holds up. Um, you gotta play it nineties, but like the rest of it, like I love the original mechanics of that game. I actually like the original mechanics more than the Unisystem mechanics. Yeah. Uh, Whispering Vault is totally playable. It is a quirky, weird little game. Um, it's fantastic for one shots. Yep. Um, it'll also play, um, it'll all, it has a campaign mode, but it is a great one shot. Um, uh, supers horror. I say supers because, um, you are like, you are like horror superheroes fighting horror bad guys. Yeah. That, um, to be fair, that's, that's a, that's Phil putting a label on it. It's not, it's not a supers game. It's never nope. been labeled in, in any kind of, of advertisement mm-hmm. or in, in any nope. copy. 
as a super game, but there is, it's kind of like Vampire. Vampire is very much like a supers game with dark horror painted yes. over the top of it because the mechanics lead to that superhero-y kind of power-y character. And that's kind of what Whispering Vault does. Yeah, Whispering Vault is very much, um, very much, uh, about being like, um, these supernatural, super-powered hunters yeah. that are hunting these like rogue monsters. It's great. And the setting for it is super weird. Um, it's weird, but it works, but it, yeah, very evocative. Um, witchcraft again, we talked about this. This is a Unisystem game. It's actually, I think the first Unisystem game. Yes. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a really good, solid, um, urban fantasy game. Like it's very playable. The magic feels interesting. I wouldn't recommend all the expansion books for it. I think Core plays better than the expansion books added to it. It is really solid. And you will get a nice game out of it if you if you go in there with the right attitude. Absolutely. Uh, and then I I can't have one of these lists without talking about Underground. That's my baby. Yep. It's my jam. Um, I love Underground. I'm ride or die for Underground. I've only re- I've only run it a few times because it's hard to get people to want to play it. Um, but I love it so much. Like love 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 it so much. What are some of the other Unisystem games you, you mentioned? Unisystem a couple of times. What's one of those um, you might Buffy. Feel about? Uh, yep, Buffy. Buffy um, all flesh must be eaten. Yep. Okay. Uh, Terra Terra Primate. Terra Primate, and then they did an updated version of Connex and Unisystem, which really kind of changed like the whole flavor of that game. It was okay. Yeah. <laughs> it took away the co- it took away the hand to hand system, and then I was like, eh. <laughs> I'm very curious to 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 like one day as a thought exercise, if like nothing else is going on, I'd like to have a bunch of people sit down. Take Connex and go. Okay, what if we expanded this up into 2020? Oh, I would love to what do would, the. Uh, you know what? I would love to do that theoretical. That would be a fun exercise. Totally, Something totally fun. would do that. All right. What's the next question? All right. Question two: Based your current style of gaming and GMing, what challenges do you think you're going to run into trying to play other games? Oh, like I know for a fact because I was somewhere early in the pandemic. I was going through Whispering Vault. And um, narrative control is going to be a tough one for me. I love shared narrative control. It's an easy hackable fix, right? I just have to add narrative control and, you know, like, or I just have to share some of it. Not super hard. The other one that really, um, the other one's pass fail, right? I, uh, I can't stand um, how pass fail mechanics sometimes blunt progress. So I really like, you know, I like fail forward. I like success with a consequence, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Those are not impossible to hack into right. games, um, but I know that those are two things that I would definitely have to deal with, um, no matter what game I play. Right? Any game I play, like those are going to be the first. Those are going to be the first two things that rub me the wrong way. Jer? Okay, um, I'm going to go with pass fail mechanics. Same thing. I think you've hit the nail on the head. So I'm just let that roll right over. Um, also, adjust your problematic content. I enjoy good pulpy games, but good gods, the number of times that it's oh look. Evil natives, um, you know, evil savages, things yep. like that. Um, trying to to work around that, uh, impossible. But it's it's a it's a problematic content, uh, and it gets even worse with some games where they decide to swap one out for the other. Um, Victoriana did that, where they decided that they had a fantasy Victorian world, and they decided to replace all native Africans with violent orcs. Hmm, this was not make a good it a idea. face. Just it make was not good. A face. It was not good at all. Correct. And, yeah. There's, there's got to be so, a better way. There's there's a much better way to do it. 
but it just takes time to do that sort of yeah. thing. Um, this so is that, the kind of the, thing we're talking about, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It just takes time. You got to sit down and think about it and um, find a way to, to just change it. Um, and there are, the answer to that would be um, don't make the natives bad guys, enemies, or savages and make the, make, you know, the colonizers the bad guys yeah. and enemies. And Look, all the bad all guys set. are white. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And after. Works and, for me. Yep. yep. And after 1935, just replace any bad guys just with Nazis. Nazis. And can't, not, can't go wrong with Nazis. Yep. Bad guys. Yep. Everybody loves punching Nazis in the face. Come on. When in doubt, Nazi that's right. out. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> Okay, that that was me. Yeah. Huh? So for me, uh, like I agree with everything we've just talked about on both both counts. Um, and then um, some of these, with the level of nostalgia that is associated with it, it, it the, there would be some challenges at, at times with um, staying in the now to be cognizant of some of the problematic things, um, like Whispering Vault. I could see myself diving into a Whispering Vault game and completely just glazing off into the wilderness with regard to like safety because we never had any safety discussions when we played whispering vault and oh, there God, was some no. interesting content in those games we had some body serious horror body horror and, stuff and, and yeah like all like there was a bunch yeah. of stuff and it's like we were all okay with it there were a couple of times where it was like right on the edge and we're like ooh that was <laughs> There was one time where I was going for a particular aesthetic with Mistress Arian's House of Flesh, and I wanted to describe these like human statues to you guys. And you were like, you were so done with how creepy the place was. Like you weren't even having any, yeah. like you were like, nope, we walk right past and we slay all of them to put them out of their misery. And I'm like, but, 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 but yeah. 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 Oh so, boy, I could mean, that game like, boy that game could have used some safety mechanics. Yeah. So just, you know, like I, I would I would like I would probably want to be like super extra careful at the gate being like, okay, hey, we're doing this. Let's go safety tools, let's go, you know, all lines and veils, whatever. Like let's get all of this covered and and make sure that we're that we're super on top of it. Just to make sure you don't, because like I said, there's a couple of those of those games that they're so ingrained in my head with with the enjoyment that we had in the moment that falling into that and just kind of like rolling without like whoa wait there's a thing here like mm-hmm. you don't want to miss something in it and 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 create some tension at the table for somebody else you know yep. it's a different it's a different time and depending on who you're playing with if you're not playing with everybody who was at the table in the day you got a new player. You could slam into something really easily with a new oh. player and be like, "Oh, wait a minute." <laughs> yep, without a doubt. Yeah. Yep. You always want to keep it safe. Yes. All right. So that brings us then to question three: What game do you want to port to a new rule set because you don't think you'll enjoy the rules anymore, but you love that setting? Uh, Jerry and I have the one of the same ones. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Star Frontiers. I I don't actually think that the um, Star Frontiers rules are the draw to playing Star Frontiers. No. And I think you could just do the whole thing in Fate. Yeah. Right? Like, just port the whole thing to Fate mm-hmm. or Savage Worlds. I know I know there's a Savage Worlds port for it already. There's a couple um, of them. Yeah, there's a couple of them, right? Like, totally fine. Just move that into a... Just, like, pick it up and move it to a modern game setting. Totally work. Um, I'll, I'll also say underground while I enjoy the original underground um, years ago, Chris and I made a fate port of the game and it was equally playable. It was quite enjoyable actually. Um, 
it played more to our style at that time was which was very much all about getting into fate back then um but it was totally playable so those are the two games that um i wouldn't necessarily hold on to the mechanics but i definitely would hold on to the setting to play again yeah oh schmitty's got shadow run absolutely 100 <laughs> yep. percent uh jerry what about you um i'd say star frontiers i think i agree with you i think that fate would probably handle star frontiers better than savage worlds yeah um i think savage worlds will handle a good one shot but i think if you're playing on running a campaign uh fate would handle it better um because star frontiers was never really about advancement it was more about the setting in the background mm-hmm. you pretty much created your character and that was that um the other two that I have, I don't know if these would count as game systems or not. There was Thieves Guild, which was a box set and a bunch of supplements that they put out through something called Haven, which was a city. And it was a, when I say D20 knockoff, I'm talking basic D&D knockoff. It was a, it was a, mm-hmm. it was its own, and it was every book was, the whole thing was Thieves Guild, it's fun to play the bad guys. And it was a box set and then a bunch of supplements and every supplement was a different so the first one was how to play brigands and bandits and the second one was um uh uh the heist the third one was infiltrating parties and the fourth one was pirates and they didn't really want you to play the bad guys you were always doing other things in there but it was well done and the other one would be the companions which was a set of um rules and modules that were very um generic uh dnd clone kind of things but every adventure was written so that it could be tied into the other like six in the series. And it was the first time I've discussed this before. It was the first time they had adventures where um, that I saw where the, the players came to town. There was a timeline. This is what happened before you got there. This is what this is what happens while you're there. And this is what happens if the players don't stop it. And um, very role playing heavy and very investigative across the board. And everything was tied together. So you had a completely encapsulated adventure. But the stuff you did in this one was going to influence all the rest of them and vice versa. Um, I just think it would make for a really good game. I'm not sure what system would handle it. Um, cause it is a little combat heavy. So it would be something that I think something like Savage Worlds might handle better than, um, I, know, I guess a game like PvP would probably handle it perfectly fine or Dungeon World. Um, so it's not quite as gritty as Dungeon World often is. So it's something fun to try. How about you, Bob? Yeah, um, I, I kind of agree. Like, I've never played Star Frontiers, but knowing that the system is, um, you know, where the system got its origins from in the era that it was in, uh, you know, something like a Fate version would, would definitely be mm-hmm. uh, a, a better. Um, we did that thing with Gangbusters where we, we mocked up what some possible changes. I would love to finish that up and, like, just do a homebrew Gangbusters game in a different setting and fiddle around with that again because... I. Gangbusters is an interesting setting to me that that could have some fun. So allow me to put the peanut butter into, let me put the chocolate into your peanut butter. There's a guy out on the internet, I forget his name, a gentleman who is a huge um, uh, Gangbusters fan. And he actually like went back and like made another edition of it. But then he went and made a BX version of Gangbusters. And I can't remember now. The last time that came up, I think I went and I looked at it or tried to look for it, and I don't remember. But that's another it. thing that, um, that yeah, that would be interesting because, again. Mark Hunt. Mark I, Hunt is the gentleman's I name. I have that BX itch that I wanted to scratch. Too. That's what I'm saying. Chocolate so, and peanut butter. Yeah, chocolate and peanut butter. But it's, yeah, uh, uh, PDF is $4.99. Well, I don't know. You know, I may have bought that. 
I may have actually already bought feels, that. It's in feels a like it somewhere. feels like an impulse buy. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, that's in that price point. We're like, oh, I'll just get that. Mm-hmm. All right, good okay. stuff. All right, so that's our discussion about playing older games. Yeah, we hope that if you're interested in playing an older game, that some of this advice is going to help you out, like whether like what to pick or things to look out for when you get it, or how to like kind of introduce it to other players, that kind of thing. Yeah, we're going to go back into the chat room one more time, check in before we head off to the conversation corner. So I noticed chromatic chromatic chameleon. I almost fumbled on that. My tongue is just twisted today. Um, mentioned that uh, Green Ronin has the IP for, I believe, Thieves World. And that, that wow. made me stop and go, is Thieves World and Thieves Guild even remotely related other than the word Thieves? They are totally different. Thieves okay. World is the shared universe that Robert Astrid put together. Yep. That was Sanctuary, Kelsey the Vulgar Unicorn, yeah, yeah. Um, Haunts and Shadow Spawn of those. Yeah. Where Thieves Guild was just let's play Thieves in let, let's make okay. an entire adventure about being thieves. Yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. that's another interesting IP that um that I, I don't know how many times somebody has thrown uh, has thrown that idea out there in RPG Several. form. But um I I wanna say I may have picked up the first book at some point back in the day and read it. I know I have it in my in my collection, but um, just if reading the lo- descriptions and stuff, I always found that to be one of those interesting settings that uh, that I would be interested to play in. I think it was the first uh, specifically designed shared universe where they got a bunch of famous authors specifically to write in the same universe with the idea they were going to share ideas. And the yeah. deal was you could use any character's from any other characters in your, for any of their stories in your, but you couldn't change them considerably without the author's permission. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have the, they, they did them as, they're all short stories. Um, and until they got after open. Um, and at the time, the science fiction book club used to collect them in three volume novel, three yep. novel volumes. I have the first three collections that here, if you want to borrow them, they're, they're you can read through them quickly. Um, they're, it's an interesting setting. Um, I'm not sure. It's one of those things that you read through, and it's really fun to read through. And then you're like, I'm not sure how well it would survive as a role-playing game. Yeah. Because most fictional universes don't hold up well to adventurers running around. You know, it's the Middle Earth role-playing thing. Middle Earth sounds like a really cool place to be, but man, you let loose a group of adventurers in Middle Earth, and it causes trouble. Um, but but yeah, if if you like the novels, they're I would recommend the novels, by the way, though they are late 70s, early 80s. So there is definitely some problematic content in them. Sure, I would imagine there's especially something consent in and stuff. Yeah. And there, if you get any of the ones about Tempest, so I like the character, there's some definite body horror in those. So I would warn people before you go in there. They're good books, but just be aware that yeah. they might be a little rough on you. Yeah. I like them. Cool. All right. Well, that pretty much covers our uh, chat room check-in. So let's boogie on over to the conversation corner and get a little more, uh, little more personal stuff. Uh. So in the uh, intervening time since the last time we had a show, uh, I have been um, very much in purge, clean, and pack mode um, with heavy emphasis on the purge. You would not believe... Uh, the stuff that I have found in my house. Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. I have, excuse me, had a big box full of magazines 
And these magazines came with me to this house from my last apartment. And they were already out of date when I left my apartment. <laughs> and I brought them with me. I had old copies of like PC World, Home Computer, um, networking and database magazines that I got from one of my, my boss's uh, co-workers at work. Um, like old catalogs of sci-fi memorabilia and stuff. Like I just this giant box of magazines and catalogs. And boom, right into the recycle bin. I'm like, there's no point. I kept um, some science fiction magazines. I had a subscription to Realms of Fantasy, which was sci-fi and fantasy stories and yep. news and stuff like that. I kept those. And I had an old copy of, uh, I had a copy of uh, Analog. Um, Analog? Is that what it called? It was a sci-fi uh, story magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a Reader's Digest size. And I kept one of the Star Trek catalogs because of all of the... Uh, the stuff that was in it. Um, but yeah, like tons of magazines that were all like, Oh my God, why did I bring these with me? Gone in the, in the, in the recycling. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. Um, uh, I haven't done a lot of packing in the last couple of weeks, but still cleaning and purging is good. Um, I recently started, uh, uh, rewatching discovery because Phil started watching it and I was done with, um, um, some of the other stuff that I'd been watching, um, and with uh, Voyager ending, I, I had room in my schedule to, to grab another, to grab another show. So I'm rewatching Discovery, and it's it's even better the second time around now that I'm watching it uh, again. Um, and Phil and I have been geeking out over some of the stuff that's been happening in the in the episodes that we've both seen, and uh, it's Phil Phil made the statement, and I'll let him say in his words, first seasons of Star Trek. As first seasons of Star Trek go, I have never seen a first season as good as Discovery. Like that, most first seasons, you're kind of like, ah, oh, they're working out the kinks. Like, yeah. you know, you've got spots, the writing issues. You've got the move along, you know, move what, along what you've home. got like, <laughs> yeah, move along home. You've got, um, uh, skin of evil. Um, you've got, I don't know, there's like a hundred Voyager ones in the beginning yeah. that I'm kind of like, eh, on. And, and the same thing with Enterprise, right? But, yeah. But boy, that discovery first season, yeah. I'm only partway through it. It's so good. Like good it doesn't let up like the, from the first episode on, you're like, well, there's no duds here. Like yeah. it just goes. Yeah. Now, and we've, we've had this conversation before about uh, uh, some of the issues, like Jerry had an issue with the Klingons and it's like, yeah, I get it. Oh, you just got to move. Like you got to just not just like, yeah, I take, did the same thing. You warned me about it. And I was look at the Klingon w- ships and go, yes, they're different from the other stuff. If they're different, move on. Because they're yeah. not, that isn't important to the show. Nobody warned me about it. I think I've yeah. got it. I think nobody warned me that yeah. they that they messed, that they fucked up the Klingons. Yeah. Now that I know that, I can go back and watch it again. But Yeah, yeah it's so just it's just better. Like, if you just ignore good. it, and you're just like, eh, whatever. Like, yeah. that's um, it. Just I mentioned in the, in the opening, um, Godzilla Singular Point, um, very entertaining show. Um, there's, a, there's also an anime-style movie trilogy that netflix has which i watched the first two i didn't even realize there was a third part to that i need to pick that up and watch it again or watch it um to complete the trilogy uh very interesting that godzilla trilogy is a um a ship leaves earth they're like finally like godzilla and the kaiju are just fucking everything up this planet is screwed let's leave 
and get the hell out of here. So they take like a like a colony ship and they blast off and they get out of ways and something goes wrong and they're like, ah, shit. And they turn around and they come back and it ends up they come back. It's 20,000 years later because of some stuff. And so 20,000 years later, like Godzilla owns the planet. Right, <laughs> and like hilarity ensues. It's an interesting okay. story with a lot of interesting stuff. That's cool, um, but I love me some kaiju, so always good stuff. Cool. And then the other thing that I've been watching um, is the new kung fu on the CW. Um, this um, I was a big fan of the original kung fu, and I watched bits and pieces of Kung Fu: The Legend Continues. Um, this is not your father's kung fu, um, aside from the fact that they they they. They clearly brought it into modern day with modern day sensibilities. It's from the CW. It's very much a product of the current times of, of diverse um, writing room. Um, they have a, like a 99% Asian cast, um, so they, they don't whitewash anybody. Um, you have your token white guy who's in there for perspective and some, some different viewpoints and stuff okay. as one of the side characters. Um, the main character is a woman. Um, the main uh, antagonist is a woman. Um, so much like Supergirl, you have a lot of the of the feminist um, uh, 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 perspective and that kind of thing. Very well done. Um, the only thing that really stands out to me um, as a big difference between um, the old stuff and the new stuff is that the original Kung Fu... It got into like the Shaolin mysticism a little bit, mostly leaning into like the chi and 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 how that stuff relates to your kung fu. Um, but this is seems to be leaning into a little bit more of the magic than the old stuff did. And I'm very curious to see. I'm only like six or seven episodes into the first season, and I'm very curious to see when we get to the climax of the story how far they go with the magic. Um, I'm not going to be disappointed if like they go full blown, like, Oh, the magic, blah, blah, blah. Like, here we go. Like, I'll be fine with it, but I'm just curious to see where they're going to go with it. Cause it's, it's, it's not as grounded in quote reality as the original show was. It leans out a little more and I don't know how far, um, but it's good stuff. The, 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 it's got your typical, um, you know, like the, the main characters learning lessons. Um, she's, she doesn't have. Um, um, like a physical mentor, she's kind of like uh, uh, got a like memories of 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 a person that she's uh, like conversing with, kind of in an internal monologue a lot of the time. Um, but interesting stuff. They're telling some good stories. They're they're hitting all the topical stuff. There's like a Black Lives Matter episode. There's a whole thing about like immigration because you know these are these are these are Chinese people, Chinese Americans living in San Francisco. So you have like a whole immigration thing angle that they, they work in, in it, in one of the episodes, like there's a whole thing. Um, but it's very well done. And the CW to me doesn't disappoint. The CW does a really nice job of, of bringing in diverse writers and talent for these shows and, and doing a really good job of telling good stories with compelling characters. Um, in a, in a way it reminds me of the USA network, the USA network had a stretch where they just kept cranking out show after show after show with compelling, interesting characters getting into interesting stories and telling good stories. So that's enough for me. I blabbered on enough. Jerry. Um, well, I watched Black Widow 
um, which oh, yeah. uh, we watched together, which I thought was a really good movie. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the story. I don't want to ruin it for anybody because I know a lot of you still haven't had a chance to watch it. So I'll just say it's it's a good Marvel movie. It's a good Comic Johansson movie. It's a good Black Widow movie. Um, I think my only thing would say is I think that some of the secondary characters steal the show, but that's okay because it's a Marvel movie that happens in all of them. Yeah. But it's really good. Um, I have to laugh because your note says Disco Rewatch. And my thought was I thought you were talking about the Dave Grohl EG concert that he did <laughs> where he where he and the Foo Fighters did um, some BG songs, which I have actually watched a couple of times. It was amazing. Um, so I started watching uh, the new Leverage, which I liked a lot. Um, I'm about uh, halfway through the first season. And uh, if you like old Leverage, this is a really good version of new Leverage. I especially like the fact that um, there's good continuity. Like they, a lot of shows that have been around, especially when they skip a jump, they talk about, oh, you know, such and such happened, and you know that was the you know that was the Vecchione job, you know, and it's just a toss off theme. And this thing, almost every time they reference something, it's from the original series. And they even got some things where like they need a couple of extra bodies just to act as whatever, and you're like, oh shit, those are the people from episode seven of season two that they helped, and now they're here as the same characters because they needed rich people to impersonate somebody kind of like oh so all the stuff that they've done is coming back kind of on my name is earl kind of things i like that a lot no that's cool it is very cool and it took me like the third episode for i to catch on to that at least i think that's what's happening you know i'm just or i'm just mandela affecting it but it looks good <laughs> but uh the cleaning i've been uh kind of overhauling my basement um partially just to kind of get things organized partially because eventually we'll start recording in person again and we need a place to do that um and uh, my birthday was uh, last week, and my wife bought me some wonderful, um, they're not really Legos, there's a company called Letme that makes um, uh, battle mechs and vehicles and stuff that are all um, minifigure scale. And the mechs are about the size, they'd be about the size of something, if you're an Appleseed fan, a Landmate, or if you watch Aliens, uh, Ripley's Power Loader. Or maybe the battle suits from Edge of Tomorrow, they're that kind of size, but they fully encapsulate the, the person. They've done a bunch of them over the years, different themes that they've done. And this time they did some support sets. They did like um a battle mech and then the vehicle that carries it kind of stuff. So she got me a bunch of those. Um she also got me uh the talking about the yeah, she got me the Goodman Games uh hardcover of the Keep of the Borderlands the Unknown book, which is very, very cool. Um Oh yeah, I saw that. That thing's pretty wild. Oh, uh, I, I I played all those games. Uh, I, and my sister bought me the second one. That bought me the Isle of Dread. So, um, those have been fun. So I've just been kind of catching up. Uh, being out of town, I did not have a lot of time to, um, read or watch much. So uh, I'm kind of a a week behind everything. I have not watched any Star Trek since uh two watch parties ago. So I'm just gonna kind of go in the tight blind. So we'll I mean, you'll be fine. We're still anyway. heading into the finale. So um, tonight's episodes are just, you know, they're typical encapsulated episodes. You'll be OK. I've, I've, listen, I've got Memory Alpha that does a really good job of summarizing them and explaining yep. all the details if I have to. So that's what I've been up to. Bill? Um, well, I was on vacation. So that was like the bulk of what I did. Um, I, I think I talked about this before. I ate some great foods. I mentioned 
tacos, mentioned Raising Cane's. I did not mention Senda's um, homemade bread. Oh, mm. goodness. Like, we had it, like, every day. <clears throat> like, for sandwiches, for breakfast and stuff. Oh, spoiled. Like, so delicious. Um, really excellent. Uh, I did um, subject... I did subject Senda to watch um, Star Trek's um, uh, two, three, and four. I thought oh. those were good. Like we skipped, we skipped the um, motion picture. Five, I'll never make anyone yeah. watch, yeah. Uh, and six, we'll watch some other time. But two, three, and four, I thought were a good, um, like a good little combo. They make a fine right? trilogy. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I think we had fun watching those. Um, on the plane rides to and from Denver, I. Um, just before I got on the plane, I bought the um, on Google. I bought the eight pack of the Fast and Furious. Okay. So um, on my flight out to Denver, I watched Fast and Furious and about two thirds of Too Fast, Too Furious. OK. And then on my way home, I finished off Too Fast, Too Furious and watched Tokyo Drift. Okay. So I'm. Uh, I'm I'm delving into the Fast and Furious series and I love it. It's ridiculous. That's um fun. it's yeah, I mean having grown up in the 80s and uh was always a fan of action movies. These are I and I know they get progressively more bonkers, right? Yeah. As like yes. cuz one is still like pretty much like a crime drama with with sick ass cars and two is like kind of a crime drama but a little more ridiculous. Three is like a um weird off note but then it connects back it has like a little stinger that connects it back to the um to the universe and i believe four is where like we're about to take the plunge into like bonker land um and i'm a hundred percent here for it um so how did you watch them on the plane oh well so when i purchased them on google um i had them on google play so i just moved them to offline mode um, so that I could watch them on my iPad. Oh, okay, cool. So, um, but here's the thing that no one told me, because I was talking to PK Sullivan about like, should I get the Fast and Furious set or whatever? Mm-hmm. Here's what no one told me. The soundtracks mm-hmm. are off the hook. Of course. They're so good. The first one was done by BT, um, who's a nice. techno artist that um, has done some other um, some other big stuff. And I was like, I'm listening to the music during these chases. And I'm like, this shit is good. Like, this is like, I'm going to go on to, um, uh, YouTube music and go make myself a fast and furious, um, soundtrack playlist. Cause I'm going to need to be listening to those. All right. So a couple other things really quick. Um, I've been reading the Marvel X of swords, um, event. That's pretty good. Went book shopping, um senda got me um copy of uh, gideon the ninth which looks fantastic um excited to actually start reading that fairly soon and when we were in wyoming we went to this used bookstore and i got bob will recognize the name i got two i got the um second and third of nancy cress's beggar series um the first one being beggars in spain um i got the other two for three bucks which was fantastic yeah good find um, they're in great condition too. And while I was on vacation, I got news that I have to report back to work. Yeah. That work from home is over. Uh, we'll see you on campus, Mr. Vecchione, um, next Monday. So next week when we record, 
Uh, expect me Aww. to be. Yes. <laughs> expect me to be disgruntled. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to go to the, um, to the luncheon. I may pop in at the luncheon, but I will technically be at work. Um, so, um, I, this blows. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping to be able to continue working from home. Um, but, um, we're all back to campus. Um, as the CDC is already changing guidelines because of the ever rising threat of the Delta variant. And I very much would like to just be home and yeah. not yeah. among people during Delta variant. So for now, we live in a place where they're not recommending masks, but I'm going to be pretty annoyed if I have to um, start wearing a mask in the office rather than work from home. Yeah. Cause then I don't understand what I'm doing here. Yeah. yeah, it would make a hell of a lot more sense to just leave people at home than it would be to put them in the office, cram them into a small space, and then say, now mask up. Or or then turn around and be like, and now go back home. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is what I think is going to happen. Um, if, uh, what you call it, um, if, if we don't contain Delta. Like, yep. we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Hey, it's been anyway, a while. Um, refresh my memory. Beggars in Spain. Is that the one with the sleepless? Yes. Okay. I still haven't gotten around to reading that ever, but I remember uh, that was one of the things that was a, a plot thing, and uh, and I've been meaning to pick that up at some point. I may have even actually got a copy of the book, maybe hidden somewhere. <laughs> if you don't find yours, um, I have a, a paperback that I'll happily lend you. All right. Well, that will bring us to uh, our wonderful Patreon shout-out, and guess what? It's time for the Royal Court again. But um, yay! Toot the trumpets for the Royal Court of the Misdirected Mark Network. Uh, we've got Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies; Andy Olson, the Duke of Dice; Bread, the Royal Mead Maker. It's always good for mead. Craig, the Lord of One Name; Eric Bontz, the Duke of Gators, and also happens to be the Lord of Beefness. Our very own GM Gerrymander, the Lord of the After Show; Jesse Edmond, the Royal Doctor. Jim from Jim Loves Games, the Royal Merchant Emeritus. John Carney, the Court Necromancer. Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Richard Wyatt, the Captain of the Royal Airship Fleet. Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Tiberius Starcrash Smith, one of the greatest names in the history of the world. The Baron of Britannia. And Todd Crapper, the Prophet of Probability. Thank you to the Royal Court for being patrons, and thanks to everyone for listening tonight. If you are free on Tuesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. the Queen's time, come join us live on Twitch where you can chat with other listeners in the awesome chat room for life and ask us the occasional question. If you can't make it to the live show, check out our podcast each week wherever you get your podcast. And you can listen to some of the other shows in the Stretch of Mark Network, such as They're a Super Geek, I apologize for it again. They're a Super Geek, Basping Dungeons, Bonestone Obsidian, <clears throat> The FM Gamers, Hannah's Talking Games, The Gnome Cast, Jane Who Hustle, The Lounge, Most Experience, and back episodes of She's a Super Geek. You can and should check out our amazing sibling podcast, Tabletop Bellhop, The Nights of the Night, and the amazing Gaming and DS. And once again, They're a Super Geek is now on. Is it every other Thursday, I believe? Yes. Bring live. Excellent show. All right. Before you uh, take your percentile role and consult the table to see what shift hit you got, Leave us some feedback. You can reach us directly via the old-fashioned emails, mmp at misdirectedmark.com. You can 
Uh, hit us up on Twitter. The show and the network is at Misdirected Mark. Uh, he's Robert M. Everson. He's GM Jerry Mander, and I am DNA Phil. And if you like what we do here and on the other shows in the Misdirected Mark Network, you can support our Patreon campaigns. MMP, Mastering Dungeons, and Pandas Talking Games are at patreon.com slash MMP. Django Hustle is at patreon.com slash Django Hustle. And Bonus Experience is at patreon.com slash bonus experience. Patrons of MMP, Mastering Dungeons, and Pandas Talking Games get access to the after show, pre-production show notes, musical parodies, the Bamboo Lounge, and other occasional special releases. This has been a Mr. Mark production. The media armor code design might drop. Be out.